Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, energy regulators revealed that power prices are likely to go up by at least 20% uh, with higher prices expected in Victoria. And for those people on the current default offer, as it's called, their power bills in Victoria are set to grow by about 30% as of the 1st of June. Why is it so and how much of this has got to do with the lacklustre transition to cheaper renewables? Well, Cam Walker joins us from Friends of the Earth as he does about monthly and uh, it's great to have you there, Cam. Good morning. Good morning. And, I mean, why are we seeing prices continue to rise, Cam? Uh, It's interesting that the big elephant in the room, of course, is the fact that we export a lot of our gas overseas. Um, We're one of the largest LNG exporters on the planet, and a lot of those uh, exports are based on long-term fixed contracts, so we can't get out of them easily. And then, of course, many of these companies don't pay much tax, so they're using our resources and sending them offshore to make massive, massive profits. And often that isn't discussed. We also know that the war in Ukraine has generally pushed up the price of fossil fuels, and we know that a lot of coal-fired power stations, which many of which are getting older, are starting to fail, and then they go offline and that increases the spot price. So there's a whole bunch of reasons. And as you said at the start, it's about the transition to renewables. We know that renewables and storage are cheaper than gas, but the dilemma we have is that um, we know that there are shortfalls coming and that the transition isn't happening fast enough to, in effect, get ahead of the curve in terms of the decline in use of gas, which is actually in decline on the S&C board. We have an integrated gas market here. But yes, we just need to increase the transition into renewables a little bit if we're going to get ahead of this short that is likely to come from 2027 onwards according to AEMO. It will come earlier here but we've known about that for many years now and that's because a lot of our gas in Victoria traditionally comes from Bass Strait and those gas fields have been in decline but they've declined faster than had been anticipated. And so the government has introduced a cap on domestic gas and electricity prices, yet still um, gas prices are, are forecast to increase by, you know, around about 23 to 25%, as much as a third here in Victoria. What impact has that cap had, do you think, on curtailing some of those increases even further? So that, I think, was an important federal government intervention, and they did do a deal with all the state governments late last year around setting a price cap. So what we are paying and what we will pay in the new financial year, painful as it is, is not as bad as it would have been without intervention. So um, what they've done is just ease some of the pressure, but obviously we are going to be paying more, and we all know it's pretty brutal as it is when you get your bill, and it will continue to get worse. Um, And I think that, you know, in the absolute short term, there's not that much that can be done. We're looking at longer-term transitions, but really, yeah, it is going to be a tough or tougher road in coming months for domestic consumers. Yeah, and I mean, you know, some of the advice around is for people to, to work out if they're on the default offer and shop around. There's websites that you can have a look at to see if you can get a better deal on your on your power um, on your power tariffs and and so forth. Um, I mean, but what about the demand side, uh, uh, Cam? You know, are we likely, do you think, to see any intervention there? And that, by demand side, I mean just to, to reduce how much power and, and electricity and gas that people need to keep their homes warm, heat their water, that sort of thing. Are we likely to see anything come from government in that area? I would say the Victorian government is one of the best governments in terms of this sort of intervention. They do have um, the gas substitution roadmap process, which is underway, which is looking at how we transition off. But of course, We've been used to natural gas for 40 or 50 years and it's, you know, hardwired into most of our homes and it's very necessary for many manufacturing purposes at present. So it's not something we can literally switch off overnight. But a lot of the savings really are in that domestic level. And uh, if people are interested, you just need to do a Google search or a web search for Community Gas Retirement Roadmap, which is the Friends Earth document, which is the response to what the state government is doing. But it looks at where we get our gas in Victoria, where it goes, how we use it. And it has a whole bunch of um, links to what you can do in your home. So, of course, that's around 
heating and cooling, that's around cooking, that's around hot water, and that's around uh, the electricity that you use for your life and how you can fuel switching to electricity. So that will give you some ideas from if you do X, it will cost Y, but if you do something else, it will cost more. So it shows you the lowest cost measures you can take in your home in order uh, to be able to reduce how much gas and electricity you're consuming and hence reduce your your power bills. And as you say, Cam, I mean, there's obviously a need to try to reduce or or curtail some of those price increases in the here and now. But in terms of that longer term vision, I I mean, as you say, there are things happening, particularly here in Victoria. But do you imagine that some of those price increases through what's currently being advanced through energy transition and the like, will, you know, we, we could avoid some of the worst of it in terms of gas shortages down the track? Yes, we're going to need more government intervention, not less. So the announcement about the increase in prices, possibly up to 25%, came from the energy market regulator, AEMO. And I think more and more, and particularly with natural disasters as well, which are linked to climate change, you see how there's much more intervention by federal governments. There's really good collaboration between state and federal governments in many instances. We get don't have to see exactly the same with more government intervention to assist people to transition away from really high price energy sources such as gas and coal. So we are going to need more from both state and federal governments. As I said before, I think the Victorian government is ahead of the game. We have a really great energy minister who really gets the scale of the problem, who's doing what with what they can or what uh, is possible. Uh, but we, we are going to need to have more uh, intervention and particularly we need to stop hooking up new houses and new suburbs. There's logical things like that. The time for that is over because all we're doing is locking the future residents into high energy costs. We need to really bite the bullet. We need to get on with helping people transition away from gas which includes appliance use like stovetops, you know, and heaters uh, versus air conditioning. We really need to see more government intervention, not less, on this issue. Yeah, and I've, I've noticed there's been a lot more media around about the, um, you know, the, the sort of air pollution in a house, um, in homes that have gas cooking as well and, and the effect on health. So that's been really interesting to see that. It's 22 minutes past nine on Triple R. We're speaking with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth and talking about energy prices and the cost of energy going up again um, in the coming months. And, I mean, if we can flip to what's happening federally, Cam, we've got the safeguard mechanism, so-called, and, um, you know, people would have heard of that. It might be a good good to remind people what it's about. But... Uh, you know, is this likely to help with curbing prices as well as emissions, do you think? I think it will, but certainly not in the short term. You know, we're talking about um, emission reductions, putting a cap on the 215 largest uh, industrial producers of emissions by 2030 with a year-on-year uh, drawdown in terms of what they're allowed, to, how much pollution they're allowed to create. So I think we have a lot of mechanisms in place here in Victoria. For instance, we have a massive offshore wind target. That's going to be fantastic. That will reduce our emissions and the, the price of our electricity, but it's not going to happen overnight. You've got to do it well and you've got to do it properly. That's equally true of the safeguard mechanism, but it's all part of the picture Good governments have to, as they say, walk and chew gum, so they need short-term market intervention now to ease the price and people that are struggling to pay their bills, but they've got to rebuild the ageing energy sector that we have, which is not fit for purpose for an era of climate change. It's certainly not fit for purpose for the 21st century. So safeguard mechanism is really important. I think um, a decision is due by July, and there's only three weeks left for Parliament basically to make a decision on whether... Um, that will get locked in, and and the mechanism is around having a year-on-year reduction in the emissions produced by the 215 largest corporate uh, entities in the, in the country that have emissions-intensive industries or activity. And it's interesting that a lot of the focus, of course, is will the Greens back it or not? And the Greens are saying, we will back it, we think it's good, but we'll back it only if um, future fossil fuel projects will be stopped uh, and that's the, the price of, of them supporting the legislation. The coalition, unfortunately, are being completely obstructionist, and I think we probably need a little bit more debate about why they are trying to run a fear-mongering campaign. We are witnessing quite a bit of that, and why they aren't getting on board with the safeguard mechanism. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a busy week in Parliament this week as that is debated once again. And yeah, we'll wait and watch um, carefully to see what happens and, and what the result of those negotiations are. But in terms of the safeguard mechanism itself and, um, you know, this kind of trading of carbon credits and the like, I know there's been some analysis about it being open to rorts and, and not being equivalent to actual kind of real emissions cuts. But of course, it plays a, an important role, especially for industries where clean alternatives don't exist, such as, you know, concrete for example. What's your perspective on the role of carbon credits in this broader energy transition? We're very dubious about the use of of, um, offsetting because there's a limit to how much you can offset. The main game has to be about reducing emissions in your activity. So if you have a factory that's using a lot of gas, you need to find ways to get cleaner in your production and use less gas and therefore produce less emissions. You can't just pay someone else to plant some trees or do something. So we have real concerns around the whole system um, of how credits are done. We certainly have deep concerns when people start to trade internationally because carbon offsetting in many countries is linked to environmental destruction and it is linked to human rights abuses and uh, the global system is really not transparent enough and not robust enough to ensure that those problems don't happen. Here in Australia, obviously, we don't have that problem and it was interesting that there was a review, the, the Chubb review, which looked into the offsetting scheme and the finding of that was that the, the scheme itself, how we manage our offsets, is fundamentally sound. But we need better oversight and uh, we need to make sure that whatever offsetting is done is able to be sustained into the future. So, for instance, you might have heard that uh, in the Northern Hemisphere in their fire season last year, a lot of forests that had been set aside as offsets and claimed as offsets by companies burnt in wildfires because they had such a bad summer. So those offsets are gone, but the companies still have the claim to the offset. So we need to make sure that offsetting as a model is transparent and is robust and actually is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card for companies who continue with their polluting operations. And, I mean, at the moment, as you mentioned, that the, the focus politically is on, you know, who might... Um, uh, you know, vote in favour of the the safeguard mechanisms, so the Greens and and independents in the Senate, and and their votes are needed. Um, I mean, what about this idea, Cam, that it might, you know, say it becomes law, that it could be improved once it is already law? I know, you know, it's a it's a really important job that senators do to make sure that we get the best laws possible. But what's your thoughts around that? You know, improving the mechanism now, uh, as well as having a look, as the Productivity Commission recently did and said, look. It should be expanded to more companies, et cetera, et cetera, once it becomes law. What's your thoughts around that? I think uh, we need to not let the perfect get in the way of the possible. I understand that this uh, safeguard mechanism is not perfect and and 43% emission reduction, which is the federal government target, of which the safeguard mechanism will only achieve a portion. I think it's about 30% of those emission reductions. So it is, in some ways, a small part, but it is a very significant part of how we will seek to rein in emissions, particularly from the large greenhouse gas polluters, the very large companies. So I just think we need to keep our eye on the ball. We need to get the legislation through. We need to get the safeguard mechanism in place and we need to keep the pressure on to strengthen it. I think that that is really the only option that we have. And that includes a very important point from the Greens that we can't have a safeguard mechanism while uh, approving new fossil fuel projects like new coal mines and new gas projects. So it needs to be consistent. But the main thing is we need to get the safeguard mechanism in place first. Always great to have your insights, Cam. Thanks so much. We'll catch you again in a month's time. Thanks. Nice to have a chat. Triple R. There's been much chatter about defence policy recently as more details emerged of the AUKUS deal, which will see Australia eventually acquire nuclear-powered submarines at a cost running into the hundreds of billions of dollars. The deal was criticised in an eviscerating intervention by Paul Keating at the National Press Club last week, where he also took aim at the Red Alert series in the Age and Sydney Morning Herald about the prospect of Australia going to war with China. In this context, new polling from the Lowy Institute suggests Australians support a position of 
neutrality and do not want to be drawn into a conflict between the superpowers. Declassified Australia is an independent news and analysis website founded by journalists Anthony Lowenstein and Peter Crono. Peter has taken up this issue in a recent piece and joins us now on the line. Thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning, Peter. Welcome. G'day, Dylan. How are you going? Very well, thanks. Although, talking about a highly serious issue, I mean, war is a frightening prospect, yet it seems to have been kind of, uh, you know, kind of dominating our media landscape uh, over the past week, at least, with little sort of discussion, I suppose, about the implications of what that would actually look like. What, what do you make of the way the AUKUS deal and the associated implications are being reported? It's absolutely ironical that it's 20 years today since the start of the Iraqi invasion um, by the United States with Australia tag-along. Um, the, the lack of uh, irony or, and, and historical knowledge uh, or, or historical recognition by the government to launch into this prospective uh, uh, intimidation and potential war with China is just beyond contemplation. Um, if we remember 20 years ago, the invasion was illegal under the United Nations, had no United Nations approval. It was based on false uh, intelligence that many people were calling out at the time. It's not only afterwards we found out. We knew at the time it was faked up. There was only assertions being provided by the Australian government. Now, assertions are not enough to make decisions on the Australian public. The Australian public needs facts and evidence. And we don't have facts and evidence about AUKUS. We don't have a copy of the AUKUS agreement. We don't have copies of what AUKUS intends to do. Um, we, we, we pick up little bits of information. Yep, bought some submarines. Yep, buying some missiles. But beyond that, the Australian public's been kept in the dark. And I guess that's for good reason, because, well, the Australian public don't want to join a war with the United States, either in the Middle East or against China, Australians have had enough of fighting America's wars. That's not my opinion. That's evidence-based. It comes from Lowy Institute polling. The Lowy Institute does polling every year or so, I mean, often, uh, more often sometimes, and their latest polling shows that most Australians... Oh, sorry, the majority, let me say it precisely, the majority of Australians want neutrality. They do not want to be dragged into other people's wars. When was the last time you heard that in the media? It's really interesting you, you raise it, Peter, because I mean, I can I can think back to when every you know the the Iraq War started, and you know I I was one of hundreds of thousands of people that stood out on the streets and went, oh, we don't we don't want to go to war, and that wasn't heated, but it also in Parliament wasn't debated, and I wonder you know your thoughts around why that happens in Australia, that, that these sorts of debates don't happen in the sort of public forum? Well, we, we had a, a problem and we need, uh, we need reform so that it, it's required for Parliament to vote on whether or not... And this is the full sitting of both seats that has the Parliament votes on a decision to go to war. It's a pretty major decision to go to war because we're out there slaughtering people and we've seen that war crimes happen at the hands of Australians. And if we're lied to in a war, then we slaughter people who are innocent for no good reason. So it's very important that the Australian public have a say. That's why uh, it's kept to the Prime Minister and the, and the National Security Cabinet. Only there do they debate this and make a decision. That's, that's mild from democracy. The United States Congress has to approve any war, even though they try to step around that on a regular basis. And the United Kingdom uh, Parliament has to approve a war. You might remember the intention of the Americans to invade Syria about eight years ago. Well, they needed the UK to come with them. The UK Parliament voted against it. So that invasion never occurred. So that's what we need. If we're going to be allies and friends with other countries, we need to be able to openly uh, discuss the issues and, and let our parliaments at least have a say. Yeah, and I suppose the AUKUS deal is noteworthy given that it was initiated by the previous coalition government and, of course, continued and advanced under Labor. So there's bipartisan support for this. And, I mean, something that I've kind of wondered or, or picked up in some of the reporting around AUKUS is that if you question it or you question this 
nature of, of such a, a military partnership with the United States and the UK in this manner that you therefore don't take the threat of China's rise seriously or think that China's kind of a benign force and don't support Taiwanese independence and that kind of thing. How do you see, I suppose, the lack of nuance, I guess is my question, about the way that we think about Australia's place in the world and that sense of almost it being an inevitability that we will support the US in a really what would be a devastating conflict? Well, Dylan, I think that whatever Australia does, we should do it by on the standards of international law. And the best we've got at that at the moment is the United Nations as a, as a place for these debates to take place. And then the United Nations may request Australia's involvement and then the Australian public, pub, uh, public via the parliament should have some debate and some say over it. At the moment, it's a phone call from whoever's the current President of the United States to the current Prime Minister of Australia, and bang, we're sending people. Um, <clears throat> you know, this is, a, this is such a mile from democracy. You know, we all think we have democracy. We, we, we have a vote about, um, about gay marriage. We have a vote about the voice. But on, on things like this, we're kept a million miles away from it. And as a strategy to win this, propaganda information operation that's being run on the Australian public, they need to denigrate anyone who raises a voice. So if you raise a voice and say, oh, well, when's there going to be an invasion in China? You're treated as some sort of unpatriotic, uh, communist-loving Putin lover. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a disgraceful debate that's going on in Australia at the moment. People need to step forward and have a have a say through it wherever they can, community radio, every other forum that's around social media. And, and then there needs to be pressure for um, Parliament to take control of the, these decisions. I mean, you mentioned the Lowy Institute poll that showed that Australians, the majority of which um, support neutrality. What does neutrality mean in, in with regards to these, um, you know, discussions around conflict internationally. What does that sort of stand for, I guess, neutrality? Well, it, it means not accepting one side blindly. It means not, well, in the case of Vietnam, believing that American ships have really been attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. It means believing that, you know, we need to base any decision we make, not on bias towards a country, not even on so-called friendship, not on an alliance. We need to think these things through and be neutral, stand with both feet firmly on the ground to consider the facts and make decisions, not on the basis of a bias towards any particular country. Now, that doesn't mean that China gets a free hit. If China uh, were to take aggressive military action in the South China Sea or beyond, of course that would breach uh, international law and, of course, Australia would need to stand against it. But, you know, from any reading, the last 40 years, um, certainly since the Cold War ended, China hasn't invaded any countries. You can count on maybe two hands the number of countries that the United States and its allies have invaded. So not being neutral means that we make mistakes. Being neutral means that we consider the facts for what they are. Speaking with Peter Crono, journalist and co-founder of the independent uh, website Declassified Australia, talking about, well, the, the latest announcement with regards to the AUKUS deal and also um, polling from the Lowy Institute that, that shows that Australians, the majority of Australians support new, neutrality and not joining the US in a war against China. And, I mean, you are a journalist, as I mentioned, Peter. What do you make of the media's role here and journalists' role? Because, I mean, I mentioned that Red Alert's series in the introduction. That was um, a series that Paul Keating took particular aim at in his National Press Club address. What should the media landscape, what should journalists do to help us make sense of the gravity of deals such as AUKUS? Well, you know, I've been doing journalism for a while. You know, I started at the ABC in the late 90s and uh, and 20-odd years of experience there, I, I, I went through the, the first, the, the Iraq war and, and saw what was going on there. And what happened is that journalists accept politicians' statements as facts. Um, a prime minister says some words and then the media reports them. That's not the role of the media. The role of the media is not as a megaphone. The role of the media, as journalists, is to inquire, is to be sceptical, is to ask questions, is to ask for proof, 
even evidence. Now, um, if we're told that China, you know, might cut off our supply lines, our shipping supply lines, therefore we need to send up subs to sink Chinese ships, where on earth is the evidence that says that? I haven't seen any. We haven't been told of any. So journalists need to burrow down and get to these facts. Otherwise, we just skip along the surface, accept politicians' statements, and end up in the next war. It's vital that journalists inquire, ask questions, don't accept false statements as facts. Uh, we saw a pretty aggressive stance by the media uh, during the last election, where politicians were ripped to shreds you know, during live um, media conferences. Where, where is that same attitude of scepticism over AUKUS? It's, I, can't, I haven't seen it. I've seen it in social media. I've seen it in, uh, in the progressive and independent media. But, um, but for mainstream media, um, the journalists almost feel as though they have to stay in line and support Australia right or wrong. It's interesting then that the the public going by the the Lowy polling is is then as as um, you point out falling on the neutral side rather than than this sort of you know um, necessarily in support yeah. of such a big spend on nuclear submarines. So that, you know, well, how do you sort of explain that, Peter? Well, Carlia, I, I think that average normal people like us. Um, has average normal opinions about the world and don't like the idea of going into illegal wars that we're lied into, lied about into. Everyone knows about the Iraq war now, if, if they're not living under a rock. Everyone knows that was a lie. What, a million civilians died? Yeah, no apologies. John Howard will be on the news tonight and we'll all think, oh, you know, what a great bloke, he made a mistake. Well, no, he went in with eyes open and we're going into this next one with eyes open. The majority of people are pretty smart, you know. If we as, you know, journalists have to rely on anything, it's got to be what the majority view of Australians uh, have. And from everything I see, the majority of Australian views... uh, The majority of Australian views is normally pretty sensible. Now, Now, that doesn't mean that propaganda can't push those views. And one of the things with the Lowy poll, it showed that, the the numbers of people supporting neutrality has dropped slightly since two years ago when they last asked that question. So all of that uh, propaganda that we're seeing, you know, the the rubbish biased reporting that we saw in the nine Sydney Morning Herald Age uh, publication, uh, I mean, that all does is, is meant to do something. It's meant to have an effect. It's meant to scare Australians and get us to support blindly um, the government's decision to go with AUKUS and to go with the US alliance. Another question, set of questions in the poll found that Australians are not happy to support the US in wars under the US alliance. Um, a separate question on wars in the Middle East. Likewise, Australians do not support entering more wars in the Middle East with the US. It's not just China and AUKUS. It's, Australians in general have had a taste of wars, bad wars, wars that are done you know, to to further US uh, interests in the world rather than to bring peace and justice. Mm. I mean, the Vietnamese were crunched because, well, they just wanted to be, you know, nationalists running their own country. It's a, it's a repeat, it's a rinse and repeat cycle, you know. The, the same issues come up uh, time and again, and here we are exactly 20 years later. The, the echo of the lies and, and the dumb decision to support the invasion of Iraq. Australians are not blind to it. They see it. They absorb it. But, I mean, there is a propaganda campaign trying to push them over the edge. And once, once, once there is one poll that shows a, a neutrality has dropped below 50%, you watch the media trumpet it. The stuff that I've published in Declassified Australia... Mainstream media are not publishing it because it doesn't support their narrative that they're pushing. Yeah, and as you point out, Peter, there's particular use of language that downplays that majority of, of people who, you know, would, do not support Australia joining the US in a war against China. Just lastly, another thing that you touch on in in that piece, unpacking the Lowy Institute's figures, is that Australians kind of, you know, broadly are in support of humanitarian interventions uh, where, you know, Australia's there as kind of a peacekeeping mission and that that kind of a thing, 
reflecting on our experience with Iraq and the shifting narrative around the justification for joining that war, how should we, I suppose, be on guard for the kinds of justifications that could be made in any escalating conflicts involving, you know, China and the Taiwan issue or any other conflicts around the world that the US might be involved in? Look, look, these people are watching. They're watching the Australian uh, population. They're, they're, they're doing these polls. They're using the polls, picking the figures they like. They're watching. They've seen the masses that went on the streets over East Timor, pushing the Australian government to do something to try to stop the Indonesian violence as they move towards the independence vote. The majority of people support that. The polling shows that about, no, oh, I haven't got it in front of you, about 80% of people support humanitarian and peacekeeping missions. So... Like I said before, the majority of Australians are sensible and, and they know what is good. They, they don't want to have no army. They don't want to allow anyone to take, invade and take over Australia. They clearly want a defence force and they want to use it for good reasons, not for illegal wars. So, you know, when we're facing this issue, we have to uh, be very careful in, uh, in just accepting the statements that are made not just by politicians, but also journalists now are, uh, you know, comment, commenting that... Uh, I mean, look at some of the programming, you know, on the weekend. You know, there's a lack of balance in, in the terms of people who get interviewed by media. So where that takes us is over the edge. And, um, uh, I, you know, I, I really think that there's a need for us to be very cautious about... about people justifying war on humanitarian grounds. You know, if you hear someone say, but they are killing their own people, that you've got to look behind that because, I mean, that was used, that's used in every war. Look at the invasion of Libya by NATO. You know, NATO invaded Libya, invaded an African country and used that as the, the reason for it. Libya is such a basket case now. You know, if we're going to support... Um, uh, a, a lawful, uh, law-based, and I don't mean US rule-based, which is what people keep talking about, but an actual international law-based system, which is really the only thing we've got, then we have to ask those questions. Journalists have to ask questions. You know, people like you guys have got to do programs like this and, and talk to people and tell people what the majority of Australians think. I find it really encouraging that the majority of Australians are sensible and and are not supporting any war. They're not anti-military. They'll support the military to take action in humanitarian and peacekeeping roles. But they're really leery about the idea of supporting an aggressive America at the moment. So there's a lot of good that comes out of this polling, you know, not that the mainstream media tells us. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Coming up very shortly, very excited to have Ned Collette in the house. He's playing a show this Friday night, joined by Leah Senior and Michael Beach down at the Brunswick. Ballroom, and uh, just ahead of having a chat with Ned Collette, I thought we would take a track from his most recent album from back in 2018. It kind of feels more recent than that. The album was called Old Chestnut, and we're going to take the track. Thanks, Richard. Then on the other side, chatting with Ned himself. Michael is a misanthrope. He likes to play around with his girl, Shannon. What's it like being back in Melbourne? It's really good. It's really good. It's like I haven't been here for since the end of 2018. Um, we were due to come. At, we we're trying to get back every 18 months or so because we already had a kid then, was, and we were due to come in sort of March 2020. Um, obviously, we couldn't. Um, and yeah, so it's it's great. It's different. It feels really different from all the other times I've come back since I moved away, mm. for sure. Like it feels good. Melbourne feels really good. Like people are kind of living different places. It's not all kind of based in the inner north anymore. It feels like there's stuff going on sort of everywhere. It's, 
Yeah. yeah. So that's what you've noticed change. People that you might have known living in certain areas have moved around. Is the I city guess, a yeah. I'm just, I mean, I, obviously, I'm just talking personally. Yeah, obviously, yeah, people yeah. always lived everywhere. But it's sort of like even just listening to the radio and stuff and hearing the gig guide and hearing where things are on now, you know, like... And, uh, like, really interesting things happening, I don't know, Springvale and, like, yeah. Ocean Grove. And it feels like people are kind of spreading out. I don't know, maybe it's just because, like, it's really expensive in, in the inner city and stuff. I think it's just but- – I mean, it was like that in the 80s because I remember, you know, my, my parents were rockers and yeah. they'd go to gigs yeah. and we lived at Bayswater yeah. and, um, you know, for the early years of my life and they there was heaps of gigs around there. Yeah. Scoresby exactly. everywhere. Like that's, what, that's kind of what I hear. Like my yeah. dad used to play in bands and stuff in, the, in I guess, the 70s. And, yeah, all the gigs were suburban and stuff and yeah. also like coffee lounges out in the suburbs and stuff like that. And Yeah, I hear heaps of stories. And then there was this sort of concentration and then, yeah, it's, it's really good to see more venues. It's kind of great because Melbourne is a much like I, I always felt like Melbourne's a much bigger city than we kind of you can think it is if you just live in the kind of bubble of the inner city and the music scene of the inner city. And What's stuff. it like compared to Berlin? Because there's yeah five million people or so. Yeah, it's about the same population, mm. um, but it. I mean, it is really different because of that. Like Berlin is essentially. I could get in trouble with my partner because she grew up there, and it, this might be a kind of outsider's view of it, but. It's essentially a city that is fairly uniform across the city architecturally. Like you've got the kind of standard five-storey buildings, apart from some exceptions, right across the city and then the city just stops and then it's the country. So yeah. it's kind of the feeling each each area has its own vibe, but, you know, the way people live is essentially the same across the city and then you get all these different like, kind of little villages or neighbourhoods or whatever. But here, like, here it's totally different. Like, just driving around with my kids and stuff, and they're just like, are we still in Melbourne? Because we've been driving for an <laughs> hour, isn't it? <laughs> it looks totally different, you know. We were trying to get down trying to get down to the bay the other day, and we were, like, driving through Turak. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> is this still Melbourne? Yeah, well, it's like, I don't is. know. It looks like, yeah. Um, so, uh, it, yeah, I guess it's different in that sense. And it's also different in a lot of other ways to do with kind of what I do and and the way the way community sort of is so strong here is, is much I feel is much different there. Yeah. You, you you don't have like a Berlin sense of community, whereas in Melbourne I feel very much there's a Melbourne Centric community. Do you that, know? That's interesting. So, because you've still collaborated with people sort of based down here, having yeah. you know, recording and that kind of thing. So, are you kind of constantly in touch with those collaborators? Do you have a crew in Berlin that you sort of work yeah, with? Yeah, kind of. Well? But embarrassingly, like most of the people I play with in Berlin are also Australians. <laughs> like, and I, I had to work this out recently for something. I kind of went back through everyone that's ever played on one of my records, and it's like. It's a lot of people, and I think there's maybe like two of them who aren't Australian, even though I've lived away for almost 15 years and stuff. Mm. Like, and it sounds like that's accidental if you had to look back and wonder. I don't know. I think there's a, there's a common – there's something going on. There's like some common musical language, even from people that I met – Australians I met after I left. There's just a way of working that is, that's comfortable, and I find collaborating quite – nerve-wracking anyway you know but yeah Australians play a certain way and I mean I you know it's not like I left when I was 18 I was already kind of 31 or something so I had a lot of my structures in in place already and Mm. yeah yeah Europeans definitely play differently yeah and well, I mean, a lot of people go to Berlin for sort of art and music-related reasons. Yeah. What kind of role does it play for you and the kind of music that you play? Is there a strong kind of folk alt folk sort of scene? Is, no, do you even identify no, as that? No, it's like or? fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah, right. Like the music scene in Berlin for live music is honestly for for like for like bands and songwriting and that sort of thing. It's it's bad. Like. I think it's because it's a really transient city and people come through, you know, and stay for a year. There's always these bands that pop up and it'll be like, you know, some Canadian person with an Israeli and someone from New York and they'll be in this band and you'll see them twice 
and they're usually pretty bad. And then <laughs> you never hear of them again because one of them went and studied in whatever, like yeah. Mexico. It's just this kind of like people move through at this like great rate. There's a really good experimental scene there. Like there's really good improvise and like sound and then like getting into electronic music obviously is really big there. But no, the band thing's terrible and, and you know, like that's obviously made me question and, and made people question, so what are you doing there? Um, what are you doing there, Ned? Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, I've got kids now and they're having a great time there. Well, what it, took you there in the first place? Well, I just wanted to get away. Uh-huh. I just wanted to get out of Australia for a bit um, and, like, it's a great city. I don't know if you've been... It's it's a fantastic city just to live. It's really open and it's really green and it's really cheap and all that sort of stuff. And there are lots of interesting people there. And also, most importantly probably, is they had... I don't know if they still have, like, visas for freelancers, whether you're an artist or a journalist or whatever, as long as you can kind of prove that's your main income. And they're, they're relatively easy to get. And so it was possible, you know... And then, like, you know, I got into a routine. I had, like, a couple of people I was working with there, like, booking agents and, and stuff like that. Um, and I just sort of fell into it and then, you know, fell in love and had a family and all that sort of thing. But it's not like I'd probably still be there anyway because even though there's not, like, a great music scene and I can't go and see five great rock bands every week or whatever, it's just a good place to work. I mm. find it a really good like it's an ex- like it's an extremely self motivated place. You don't get this. You don't get these kind of which makes it hard. You don't get these kind of pushes from like, oh, that was my name on the radio, or you know, all these people know about this record because everyone here goes to gigs all the time. But it kind of in that way, in this weird way, it kind of I really like that way of working. Just being on my own, just going to the studio every day, just kind of you know. Joni sang in that song I'm a lonely painter you know yeah. I just I like I like I like doing that like I like working that way and I yeah. like not always knowing what's going on and kind of oh well, maybe I should go to that gig or why aren't I playing this thing because there know. aren't any yeah kind of kind of there's just not like and you know obviously I go to other places yeah. it's easier to get to the states and it's easy to get around Europe and Totally, yeah. yeah. Um, well, what's I mean, your last album came out in 2018. So have yeah. you have you been playing and writing quite a bit of music yeah. in the last few yeah, years? I've got heaps, but it's just, <laughs> I mean, you, I don't know if you guys are aware of like the perfect shitstorm of making records that's occurred in the last four years or so. Like, so just before COVID, like a lot of what people like me and a lot of the bands from here and you know every kind of rely on weirdly is vinyl like making vinyl that's what that's what the kids like to buy and that's what I like to buy and all that sort of thing and I think it was just before COVID there was a fire at one of the two vinyl lacquer factories in the world which was in LA the other one's in Japan I think so like you need you need this lacquer to to press a vinyl record so suddenly there was 50% less of those in the world then the right. pandemic and then, you know, like the 49th reissue of Dark Side of the Moon came along, the major labels sucking up all the... All, all the lacquer. All the, all the man- yeah. manufacturing space. Ed Sheeran proudly declaring that, oh, we've just fucked up the record industry for all the vinyl manufacturing because, like, me and Taylor just pressed... <laughs> I don't know why Ed sounds like he's from you know, here. I love the impersonation. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was just here. He would have picked yeah. up an accent probably. So, like... For the last three or four years, the turnaround on, on pressing a vinyl record anywhere in the world has been like, it got out to like more than a year. Yeah. So you could finish a record and know it wasn't going to come. So the long short story is like I've made a couple of records and things that the kind of bottleneck is just clearing and so theoretically they'll start coming out this year. Oh, excellent. But it's just like labels are screwed, like... It's it's a really hard environment out there to run you know a what? record I, label. I didn't know about the fire, um, but just supply. Well, the supply chain stuff is and now just the Ukraine, tricky anyway. Yeah. Like the prices are really expensive in in Europe for manufacturing anything because of the war. So and being able to rely on a, a date to release something as well. Like I've heard of there being long blowouts in sort of yeah yeah and yeah. So how that's do you it. plan? So you can't like my label who are based in the States, they just have a policy. They will not start promoting a record until they've got the copies in yeah. hand. Like, 
because it's just it's been too risky and yeah because people the idea that people put it on order and and wait but you mentioned the Ukraine war and you're living a lot closer to to conflict than we are here yeah. in Melbourne can you tell the difference there is it well it's just really bad for making vinyl records I realize it kind of sounded like oh yeah it's really present people are I mean it's not like people are worried about it in 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 Germany in the sense of themselves, but it's it's on the doorstep. There's a lot of Ukrainians who've come over, obviously, um, kids in the schools in Berlin and stuff who've, who've come over, and a lot of them, you know, their fathers had to stay behind, their fathers weren't allowed to leave because um, they had to be there to fight. It's, and it seems like, you know, even that seems like something out of the last century. Yeah. Um, there's obviously the practical side of it for everyone. Oil is expensive, gas is expensive, heating's really expensive. Everyone we know this winter that's just sort of ending, I guess, although it just snowed, apparently. Like, we all didn't heat much this winter just because everyone got letters from their various um, agents running their house saying, like, you just need to know that the prices... Because you pay your... You pay your heating annually based on a kind of estimate of what it's mm. going to be generally and they were like these could be as much as five times more in a year so like wow. every, everyone's just kind of turned it down so you just shiver through winter kind of i mean like it's probably just like melbourne houses normal exactly <laughs> yeah. you know, like the most brutal winter yeah. i've had in the last 15 years since i've gone was the first time i came back here in winter and yeah, i was just thinking, yeah it'll be a doddle you know and then i forgot like <laughs> we don't have enough heating yeah there's like no. two inch gaps under all the doors yeah. i know so. brilliant isn't it so it hasn't been that bad like because the apartments are even the old apartments are insulated but it's just more that yeah you just feel the effects and of course then there's just the store it's like headline news every day mm. it's like i don't know what it's like here because i haven't been reading the news a whole lot since i've been here but it's like you're always sort of checking in on the situation because yeah. you know there's missiles floating into Poland and weird crap and yeah, it's a disaster. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Um, and I mean, you reissued your 2006 album Jokes and Trials recently as well. It's 16 yeah. years after that was. Yeah, so that was released. supposed to be 15, but the <laughs> record right. manufacturing. You know, <laughs> I mean, 16 works, it's right? Vladimir's it's like... fault. Yeah, six. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that happened. I'd always wanted to put that out on vinyl. It wasn't an option when we put it out at the time because I don't know. It was my first record and. Um, and Feeding Tube Records, who, yeah, is my label in the States, they were keen to do it and they split it with a friend of mine who's got a label in Louisville in Kentucky and I was just happy to do it. It was great. It sold – I sold all my copies. Like, yeah. So, yeah, it was, um, we're playing – I'm playing kind of a bit from it at these shows I'm doing. Excellent. I mean, do you often revisit some of those older tracks and work them into your sets or – really, like – Maybe one or two from way back then, um, just because they never really seem to fit that well with with newer stuff. But mm. I've kind of because I've got a couple of albums finished, but I don't really know when they're coming out. I don't really want to get into playing that stuff live yet because mm. it also requires a kind of different band setup. Um, so it's been nice to kind of go, okay, well, maybe when I go to Australia, also because that record was kind of, it was a very Melbourne record. Yeah. Like, and it was kind of the record that got me going here. And so I thought, okay, well, no, I'll, I'll grab a bit more from it and see if, and it's been nice. It's been good revisiting it. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's all right. Yeah, I remember it. I mean, this, this program started on Triple R in 2007, eight. Yeah. So it would have been a freshie was, then. Yeah, and yeah, I remember, yeah. I mean, if people are wondering who we're speaking to, it's um, Ned Collette um, in town, usually based in Berlin, hence all the Berlin talk, uh, yeah. playing shows in Melbourne, playing this Friday at the Brunswick Ballroom with Leah Senior and Michael Beach, uh, which is going to be a great gig. Yeah, tell us about that gig. Are you kind of on stage at the same time or yeah, is it one after the other? that's what we're doing. So I think literally the last gig I played here was me and Leah Senior and Michael Beach, but it was just that kind of straight up like two support sets and, and I play it. Um, I've seen them in between. I think since then Leah was in Berlin and we played together and we did a song together and I'm always kind of in touch with Michael cause I'm a friend and a huge fan. 
And so when I was, I was really determined when I came here not to, just to do a few small gigs and, and kind of make it more a family trip and, and not mm. worry about, you know, whether people are going to show up. But I don't know, I asked those guys in the Brunswick Ballroom were keen to have us. And then I just sort of thought, well, yeah, it'd be better. I kind of get sick of the support format. I mean, those guys are brilliant in their own thing. Like, they don't need to support me. It's just, we're just friends who yeah. want to play together. So I said, I've kind, I'm kind of keen on this idea generally in touring. Is like, what if we just all learn each other's stuff? And we'll just kind of do our own, like, Rolling Thunder review, like, last waltzy kind How of... How fun. Yeah, everyone jump up. And we've got, like, people from each of our bands sort of as the rhythm section. And Mick Turner's playing from yeah. Dirty Three. He's going to come and play on everyone, like, a few songs from everyone. And it's just really fun. Yeah. It's... And last time I saw him there was with Mess Esque. And it's always oh, yeah. great to see him noodling around. And yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's it. I mean, it's really, really fun. We had one rehearsal a couple of weeks ago. And everyone just had a great time, including, like, so Joe Talia, who I've made all my records with, kind of, he's a great drummer. He was just having such a great time. And usually he's not, like, you know, sit in rehearsal having a great... At some point I realised he was kind of running the rehearsal. Like, <laughs> never seen that. He was like, no, what we should do here in this section? And afterwards we were all just really, really vibing. It's like, let's go for a beer. Let's have a barbecue together. Let's hang out. It was just... <laughs> so it's... The whole idea was, yeah, just two sets of kind of let it all hang out. And if, awesome. there's, if there's mistakes, there's mistakes. But the songs are all good and we'll just kind of get through it and it should be kind of less formal than yeah. usual. Sounds like a special show, you know, a yeah. one-off potentially or one that might not happen well, we're too, doing, too often. Well, we're doing it on Friday and then we're doing it in Warrnambool. Ah, uh, yeah. If there's any listeners in Warrnambool, I've heard that you're not buying tickets, so buy tickets because we're playing there on Saturday night at the Dart and Marlin. Um, well, I think we thought it was going to be one-off, but we all are so into it that I think we're going to have to kind of try and I'd love to I'd love to do something like that and take it through America and just yeah. do the endless tour but I think I'll try and get back and we'll do it here in more places excellent so, and yeah. any other dates on the tour um I'm doing three solo shows up in Sydney in Sydney Thoreau and Katoomba the weekend after excellent yeah, it's easy to find yeah. Well, um, you can catch Ned Collette playing with Leah Senior and Michael Beach all together on stage and a bunch of other collaborators as well. This coming Friday, March 24, down at the Brunswick Ballroom. Sounds like it's going to be a really fun show. You can head to the Brunswick Ballroom website for details and to nab yourself some tickets. It's been uh, really great having you back on the show. I think you might have been in here, what, 11, 12 years ago or something? A very, very long time it's ago. You look really the same. Like... You haven't changed at all. Oh, thanks, you too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.